1: we mm-hmm. This is the Josh Marshall Podcast. You know, a lot's happened since we saw you last, since we talked to you last. Uh, We're recording this episode on June the 29th. So we're one day after this, uh, you know, kind of rush arranged uh, hearing with this uh, Trump staffer, Cassidy Hutchinson, that obviously, you know, kind of out of the blue and a big thing. And since we talked to you last, Roe v. Wade was overturned. So two Two very big things, obviously very different things in their magnitude. Uh, unfortunately, we knew, we basically knew this Roe decision was coming. Uh, still, it was, it is of such a magnitude that it still had a fairly shocking and shattering impact. I mean, I would say, I mean, in many ways, we knew this decision was coming down from the moment that Amy Coney Barrett went on to the court. Some people kind of, you know, holding out some level of hope, or maybe they're going to split the difference or whatever, or maybe it won't be this term, it'll be the next term. But it's been pretty clear since then. It was certainly quite clear since that uh, uh, draft opinion was uh, leaked in early May. As it happens, uh, it was barely even revised. Like that was the opinion, basically, some minor differences and, and so on and so forth. Uh, on the other hand, this testimony yesterday in the January 6th hearing was uh, certainly it is, it was surprising, whereas, as I said, the Dobbs' decision was not a surprise. This was a pretty big surprise. They were planning on going dark until after uh, the holiday weekend, you know, kind of come back and start having hearings again. I think I think they were planning on having the next hearing on July 11th, you know, something mid July, something like that. They announced the day before that they're going to have this new hearing, and you know, there was a lot of questions, like you know, they're announcing a kind of an emergency hearing and they're kind of suggesting it's going to be a big deal. or they, do they really have the goods? Uh, I would say they had the goods. That was pretty consequential testimony. And it's still, I mean, Kate and I will talk about this, but it's still a little uncle- unclear to me. They talked about new evidence and it's a little unclear to me what the new evidence was besides uh, Hutchinson's testimony. And she had she had already spoken to the committee, I believe, four times in tape depositions. And we had seen some of her testimony in one of the earlier uh, one of the earlier hearings, I believe, the one I think the most recent one until the one yesterday. So I don't know if it was they had access to some evidence that sort of confirmed some of the things that she told them or just that she was willing to, you know, to, to, to testify publicly. In any case, it was a pretty big deal. And I think a lot of us yesterday were after that hearing, trying to sift apart, like what, what's the, what's the, what's the stuff that has a lot of, uh, you know, kind of shock value and what's the stuff with a lot of legal significance. And my experience, at least it took a while to kind of get my head around all the different things she had discussed, because there was a lot there. I think one of the most significant legal uh, revelations was there's, there's now seems to be a lot more evidence that Trump committed seditious conspiracy. And that's a specific legal infraction. And, you know, we know big picture... He tried to change the results of the election, and that really amounts to kind of overthrowing the constitutional order. But the key is in the law, you have to, it's usually not for better or worse, the big picture that is what counts in a legal context. It comes down to small pictures. And there were specific things in Hutch- Hutchinson's testimony that look like those small picture affirmative acts that are what a prosecution is based on when very specific ones he makes these statements let those people with their weapons in they're not coming for me they're not endangering me and then he sends them off to capitol hill that is knowledge of what's happening knowledge of the significance of what you're doing and then taking a positive act so that's one thing, and that a lot of people have talked about that. Another thing is, and this is, this is combined with certainly one of the like, the most shocking part that what we found out, but this was very new to me. Trump, he hadn't just like talked about maybe he was going to go up to Capitol Hill. At least according to what she testified, he absolutely wanted to go to Capitol Hill, and that was definitely the plan. To go up, the, up to Capitol Hill. And that's something, I didn't know that. I always kind of assumed that it was a bit of a bait and switch that he kind of said, oh yeah, we're walking together. And then he kind of scurried off to the White House because he's a coward, right? Um, it seemed like, and not just because of that incident in the limousine, it seemed like he absolutely wanted to go there. And if you if you start putting together that the plan is that he's going to go there and lead them or at least sort of be there to egg them on. And at least in some of the testimony, sounds like he was looking at, at he wanted to have a, kind of like a confrontation in the House. You know, maybe, maybe Mike Pence is there going to read the, you know, read the elector numbers and, and Trump's going to go, oh, no, you don't or something like that. So here's the thing. Once we know that, once we know that was the plan that was somehow short circuited, by some mix of Pat Cipollone or Mark Meadows, even though he didn't want to, you know, kind of tell Trump he was short-circuiting it or whatever, that starts to make that war room that Rudy Giuliani and uh, a bunch of other kind of Trump dead-enders had, that starts to seem a little different. If the plan is that Trump's going to be there, he's going to be on Capitol Hill. Well, okay, then you start kind of getting a little more of a sense like, what, what are you war rooming? Well, you're war rooming how that's all going to how that's all going to play out. And one other thing that we've known for the last year and a half, you know, we've had all these, you know, semi opaque accounts that Trump's sitting there as everything is unfolding, watching it on TV and being excited and, you know, saying, you know, refusing to call the people off uh, and, you know, kind of he's getting a sort of predatory thrill of seeing the people who betrayed him being terrorized by this mob. But now it sort of seems like he's pissed because he's not supposed to be at the White House. You know, that, that, that incident in the alleged incident in the presidential limousine, you know, it's almost a bit like a kidnapping. You know, they're, they're refusing to take him where he wants to go. So a lot of these things come and they look in a more, they look, we have a more detailed, specific uh, account of what happened. And a lot of them are much more direct. They're much more direct in tying him to the violence, instigating the violence, wanting to accomplish something with the violence and so on. And then, of course, we've got the thing with this, this, this you know, crazy account in, in, in the limousine. We're going to talk about that in a minute. So we'll get into all that. And then we've got the fact that, that uh, Roe v. Wade is done. It's completely done. We're not, you know, kind of in, in, in Zeno's uh, abortion rights here. Where kind of, you know, the, the court keeps chipping away, but never quite get it. It's, it's completely done. And now this is back, and, you know, uh, administrations talking about what they can do with executive orders and stuff like that. The reality is there's not much you can do with executive orders. Uh, There's probably not that much you could do, even if you had a court that wasn't thoroughly corrupted. This is going to come down to the political arena. So we're going to get into all of that. Kate Riga, my co-host and I, before we do, let me quickly remind you that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. As summer drags on, your daily ice coffee can start to taste a little flat. Spice things up and make the switch to Grady's New Orleans style cold brew coffee. Whether you're a Bourbon Street pro with beads to prove it, or you can't tell a beignet from a bagel, I'm always wa- wondering if I'm mispronouncing that bagel. I can manage the other French thing. I'm not not. I'm still uncertain. You'll love the way it tastes. Grady's captures the distinct flavor of of New Orleans style coffee by adding chicory to their coffee beans. Chicory has a light natural sweetness that makes for a perfect cup of iced coffee that's rich, smooth, and never bitter. Ready to bring the best of the Big Easy home? Get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's com with promo code TPM. So, uh, Kate, so I guess we, we, we talked about this before the episode. We're going to get into uh, the latest January 6th hearing first just because that's what just happened. And then we're going to, you know, talk about the other uh, momentous news momentous news that happened since the last time uh, our listeners joined us. So what we both watched the hearings. What was your take?
0: Well, it's funny because, you know, I haven't been watching the other hearings in real time because we have other reporters assigned to it. But the production value, it's A plus. It's really good. Yesterday was captivating Um, and just kind of even the small theatrical details of Cheney's pacing as she kind of bridged the clips together and then would throw the mic back to Cassidy Hutchinson and then back to clips. You know, that side of it very polished, very well done. I think the big gasp moments kind of dropped exactly how they wanted it to. Yeah. Um and there's something compelling about the fact that this woman's very young and she's you know, speaking up in public like this. Though I would say I just saw liberal Twitters kind of leap to valorize her and be like, what a hero. And it's like, okay she worked for this administration right knowingly for a long time she knew this information during the second impeachment was the which was the best shot at making sure this very dangerous man doesn't become president again sat on the information until now when she's facing the potential of legal repercussions so I do think we can communally accept that there is a middle ground between pure good and pure evil and that most people are you know are in between it but uh, you know just putting that out there um, and, and,
1: and if I can one, yeah. one point here that I always I think is important important for you and I and everybody to keep in mind that, as you said, a Trump dead ender, right, you know, past all the different outrages still there. Right. A- and probably most of us before this turn of events, if you say, all right, well, you know, Mark Mark Meadows, uh, body person, you know, top aide, you'd probably think, yep, I'm sure she's a stone cold liar.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs>
1: right. But now we all and and I do assume what she's saying is true. Yeah. And I do give her credit. But I think we want to keep that, you know, in mind. Anyway, sorry, to interrupt. No,
0: you. yeah. Please and I, I do think our standard for like a quote unquote good Republican has just plummeted so dramatically that now it's like if you didn't love the insurrection, you're kind of on team good guy. So You're a rhino. <laughs> exactly. Um yeah, no, I thought it was it was compelling because some of the images were just the kind that's going to stick, you know, the ketchup dripping down the wall of the Oval Office uh, dining room for the kind of poor beaten down valet to clean up. That is compelling. Um, Trump, you know, wrestling with the Secret Service lead to to go to the Capitol. I mean, those, those things stick. Those are evocative. Um, maybe we should start with the Secret Service tussle because there's been some... Really questionable journalistic decisions since that since she's told that story or since we learned of that story, and I, you wrote about that in a blog post, I think either this morning or yesterday
1: yeah, i mean it it's okay so so she and, and it's important to get the details because even some some uh, reporters kind of got this a little off in the first accounting. she never claimed she saw any of this. What she what she testified to is that immediately after it happened, she came upon uh, the head of White House security, who's part of the Secret Service, although he also has like an appointment. That's that's just kind of how that works. And then the head of the president's detail, you know, comes. It's it's something like, you know, kind of afternoon of January 6th, walks in on them. They say, hey, this just happened. Holy crap. Right. And and the security head of security guy tells her what allegedly happened in the presidential limousine. The, the lead Secret Service detail guy is there too. So she's not only talking to one witness, but the other witness, the guy who was allegedly throttled, is right there as this is all being said. And he doesn't say, hey, whoa, 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 dude, that's not what happened. So basically, as the account goes, the two immediate eyewitnesses tell her this directly an hour or so after it happened. Now, what what Kate is getting at is that we've had a a run of stories where, you know, someone will say, uh, someone will report, well, uh, Tony Ornato, who's one of these two guys, he, people familiar with his thinking say, no, 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 that didn't happen. He's going to, he's going to deny it. Uh, He's ready to testify. But like, like, okay, we should hear, you know, we, we, they're the, they're the eyewitnesses and uh, we don't. You know, we don't know this Hutchinson woman every you know we should hear everything um, for now, he and the other secret Service guy they're not even willing to call up a reporter and say, "Hey, that didn't happen and I never said that and my lawyers are talking to the committee. I'm happy to come up there because that never happened. it just never happened now if 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 they said that, these two are apparently pretty big Trump loyalists um, so who knows, but at least then I' like, okay. They're saying that didn't happen, but they're not willing. They're not saying that they're doing this kind of like intermediary says that it didn't happen. So, you know, what it comes down to is the price of the price of admission here is you testify under oath. If you're not, she testified under oath. She's subject to perjury indictment if she lied about something. So you, you come and you come and testify under oath and until you do whatever, and for reporters, you, you should really, I'm not saying you kind of don't say anything. I think, I think the way to report something like this properly is to say, you know, people close to Tony Ornato is saying he denies it, but he has been unwilling to, to talk to any reporter on the record about it, let alone testify. You know, one of the things uh, that I think in maybe an episode or two ago, we talked about, you know, Ginny Thomas wife of Clarence Thomas. You know, when all that was coming up, she put out these statements like, oh, I'm, I'm, I can't wait. You can't, yeah, you know, don't, don't hold me back. I got to the, I gotta get to the microphone. I'm going to testify. I'm going to clear my name. Well, now came out yesterday, a, a letter from one of her lawyers, who's again, you know, from some like boutique law firm made up of all like, you know, degenerate Trump lawyers. Now they're saying, oh, no, 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 it, it's the committee's too biased. And we're not sure you have enough evidence for us to testify. I don't know what that means. You don't have the goods yet. You don't, you don't have the, you don't have me dead to rights. So the point is. Well, and it
0: suggests that there's more evidence out there that they haven't gotten their hands on. Yeah,
1: that's, that's not, that's, that's, I mean, that's the kind of thing I think you say, like, if you're a mob boss, you say, hey, you don't have the goods, so I'm not going to talk to you. Like, okay, you know, when you're on trial, you don't have to testify, right? But, but, But if, if the idea is you're actually innocent. That shouldn't matter, right? <laughs> You're supposed to clear the air. What the fuck? All right, okay. So, so the point is, um, they're they're disputing it, but so far they're not willing to dispute it in any meaningful way. And I think I was reading, I was reading um, a couple stories about this this morning, and in I, I think part of the issue is here is that they talked to the the committee talked to these two guys, but before they talked to her. So I don't think they. It at least seems to me that they didn't they didn't confront these two with her with her account. But when they testified, they talked about a very heated argument in the limo. Trump demands to be taken. They refuse to take him to the Capitol. So their account is not that different, right? And and when you see their kind of you know four steps removed denials, I suspect what we're talking about is, well, did he really put his hands on on the collarbone? Did he really assault the Secret Service agent? You know, maybe he grabbed towards the driver. Did he touch the, you know, did he touch the steering wheel? I think we're talking about semantic disputes. And, and you know, and look, if she kind of laid it on a little heavy, you know, we should know that. But I don't think we're really talking about denials. I think we're talking about, oh, I didn't, you know, because you could imagine it's a small area. You're in a car. It's, you know, president has a big fancy car, but still a car. So maybe there's kind of like some scuffling and he's whatever. Anyway, I guess we'll see.
0: And I think the most important part of that, despite, I don't know, what I see as like very questionable journalistic decision to run these stories, because, you know, that's tangential just for a second, but that's not what protecting sources is about. It's not letting people launder their reputation without having to have any personal stake in it. It's about protecting people who have serious things to lose if they talk to the press, if they expose what they know, usually because of power imbalances, people who know things but don't have the power to protect themselves from people who might hand down repercussions for their honesty. Um, but, you know, back to the point is that we are talking about all people who worked in or near an administration that's claimed to fame is lying. <laughs> and we're trying to tell who's telling the truth. And on the one hand, we've got a woman who is speaking under oath, who is speaking publicly, is attaching her name and her face to her account. And on the other, we have people who are putting out unattached denials through a willing and compliant Beltway press in in this coordinated way that like all these outlets are getting basically the same information at the same time. And they're not even willing to go on the record with a reporter, much less incur any of the potential penalties that come from lying under oath. So when you take the weight of those two things, and I agree with you that it does seem like there is some room for semantic squishiness here. But I mean, you got to go with hers because she's she's putting her neck out and the other yeah. side is not. So. And
1: and the other thing to keep in mind, I mean, look, she will be lots of liberals on Twitter will be saying she's awesome. Yeah, that's true. That's all true. She will never work in Republican politics again. Certainly not Trump by Republican politics. She's radioactive. So it's certainly true. Maybe she'll write a book. You know, it's, it's not like there aren't some, aren't some benefits, but this is someone who by, by, Every evidence we have wants to be a career Republican operative. And that is done. So the consequences for her, and, and this is let alone you're gonna get death threats and all this kind of stuff. And I'm sure she'll be fine at the end of the day. You know, most people who do these, you know, kind of turn against Trump. You don't you don't see like, wow, found behind a bowling alley. <laughs> Neck slit open, bled out sad 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 you know but still it's not fun getting death threats it's not fun having to hire security and stuff like that so the consequences to her are 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 real and measurable so you do come back to why would she why would she come up with this right. it doesn't you know the, yeah
0: and as much as she has a a vested interest in perhaps being honest with the committee and kind of shielding herself, she doesn't have a vested interest in being the big bombshell of the committee hearings. You know, like why make herself this kind of Liz Cheney esque star? Where you know, Liz Cheney's political career has not exactly been helped by her pushback against Trump. Yeah, so, yeah.
1: no, it's true. I mean, there's there are certainly, and I and I think this is where you get to, you know friendly witnesses, and if not hostile witnesses, witnesses who are not trying to help, they're just not willing to perjure themselves. Right. You know, you can certainly, there are certainly ways she could have answered questions about what she heard about what happened in that car and not perjured herself and not said that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, she it was, it was pretty dramatic. And one of the things that's interesting for us to think about here is, is that you, at a certain point, this is, just, this is just kind of human nature, I think. You, you know, you have people who, I mean, look, this person, this woman clearly loved Trump and thought he did all these wonderful things. Um, and so, and, and Liz Cheney, Liz Cheney certainly loves lots of things that Trump did. Just because she's a conservative and he, mm-hmm. and, and, and he signed over a lot of things to sort of, you know, the conservative ideology, things that he didn't, you know, weren't, that he didn't care that much about. But you see there's, it is, it is very hard for a person to be, it's very hard to be on two sides of something. At a certain point, it's just kind of human nature. You gotta, you have to go all in because it's too psychically uncomfortable and difficult not to be all in. And one thing is, once you, you want some friends, right? And and if you're kind of like, yeah, he did that, but man, I want to make America great. Just kind of a hard to be on, but you know, <laughs> but you can kind of see there, she had to make a decision like, you know what, fuck this. Yeah. I'm going to tell the whole story.
0: Yeah. One thing I want to talk about um, before we move on to Dobbs is that you know, obviously, her biggest tie to this is being mark Meadows' right hand woman and it you can tell by the way she tells the stories you know that she can go into rooms that he's in, you know, go right in kind of thing that she can interrupt his meetings to show him when Jim Jordan is calling i mean that's a very kind of the it makes sense for this this kind of relationship that they would work so closely together, but a lot of her testimony is capturing what he's doing during these hours. And I was struck by almost a bit of the ambiguity around it because some stuff she says is obviously very bad for him. You know, like when she's separating Trump people into the camps of how they want to react, she says that he wants to be in the blame other people, blame Antifa camp, and is only kind of pulled into a more middle ground by other people eventually. But... The most striking Mark Meadows scene to me is when she's getting kind of frustrated and panicky because it seems like the risk of violence is escalating very quickly. And he's just like not even really deigning to look up from his phone at that time. And I couldn't fully grasp. And I wonder what your sense was if it was just Trump doesn't give a fig. So I don't give a fig. This is Good. These are our people. Whatever. Or if it was this kind of like panic response, I'm just not going to look at it, and maybe it'll go away. Type thing. What What did you get from it?
1: it? It's certainly one of these kind of Rorschach kind of things that it it is it it's sort of pregnant with all sorts of possible meanings. My basic sense was that. Mark Meadows knew this is what Trump wants Mm -hmm. and he's not willing to cross Trump. And so the looking at the phone is it's basically just I can't hear you like I like this is how it is. Right. That he is he is on board. He's ready to move forward, but he is not willing. He's basically a coward. And so he's not willing to say, you know, Cassidy, we won this election. Fuck this. We're going up there. And if people get hurt, people get hurt. He just is staring in his phone. He's not willing to talk to her at the key moments where he makes needs to make the big decision. He's not willing to kind of look her in the eye. And he's certainly not willing to do anything. Um, And so he's in that sense, kind of, you know, just one more Trump coward. Yeah, basically.
0: And the other thing that really made me laugh aloud that came out either in the last few minutes of the hearing or directly after and, and was separated by it but stephanie grisham who was melania trump's um kind of like press secretary spokeswoman <laughs> tweeted this screenshot of a conversation uh, between her and Melania where she said Stephanie Grisham says do you want to tweet that peaceful protests are the right of every American but there is no place for lawlessness and violence question mark and Melania just responds no (laughs) that's
1: it like, so here, here's here, one thing, if you can refresh my memory. So uh-huh. she was Melania's press secretary uh-huh. and then for a significant period of time became both of their press secretary. So the press secretary. Right. And then at a certain point, she was replaced, I think, by uh, what, Kaylee uh, McEnany. McEnany. And then but but she remained Melania's. Right? Yeah, that's what,
0: that's what I remember the course of events. Right.
1: Being. Okay. So, do we know how? Do we know when she stopped being press secretary? I, I think Official. it was like. Mm. I, I think it was like mid twenty twenty.
0: That seems right to me.
1: Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. No. And and we already kind of know she's gone rogue. Like mm-hmm. I think she wrote a book and she's really kind of trashed right. Trump. But I mean, that's and and the funny thing was, is that that statement, I mean. Even that statement is like the minimum. I know. You're just saying like, hey, it is cool what you're doing. Please don't kill anybody. That would be going too far. Do not kill anybody. Do not hit any- hit anybody over the head with a flagpole. And Milani Otherwise, is like. Nope. Go nuts.
0: It's yeah. just, it's so funny to me. I think the reason it made me laugh so hard is, first of all, just like the clear kind of care that went into crafting this statement, and Melania doesn't even use like perfunctory politeness, but also it's just the encapsulation, I think, of Melania's abject misery. Just... and. It, I think sometimes people try to map onto her that that misery came from some kind of like conscience or some sense that what Trump was doing was bad. And of course we had the dust up with the I don't care, Jack and all that stuff. But it just really seems like she hated Trump and she hated her life and she hated being involved with everything and not from the sense that I can tell of like concern for the greater good, but just she doesn't like this guy. She doesn't like having to hang out with with him all the time and be at the center of this. And so it's just almost like the perfect artifact in capturing this woman's just miserable entrapment that never really broke outside her own feelings.
1: See, okay. So, so here, here's the thing. I, I think we see it the same way, but I have a slight, maybe a slightly different take on this, but I, but I think basically it's the same is that because she clearly has a revulsion for her Mm -hmm. husband that we saw these little signs of, you know, kind of over the course of the presidency that a lot of people imputed to that, like, Oh, the ultimate never Trumper. Right. She knows he's bad, but she's like, uh, there's a prenup that she has to return to Slovenia if she, (laughs) you know, turns against him or something like that. But what became clear to me over time is that Trump's evil. Melania is also evil, but she just doesn't like Trump. Right. And people kind of impute to this that uh, that she's one of the good guys, but she's not. She's also very evil, but she just doesn't like Trump. And I think that we're basically saying the same thing. But in that sense, I don't see it as like I don't I don't see it as her being like entrapped. It's it's just part of the gig she doesn't like, you know. (laughs) Having to be with Trump. Yeah, Yeah, well, you know, I'm sure there's other parts of the gig that are that are that are uh, that are nice. Um,
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I'm 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 saying the same thing. It's just it's kind of like, I don't know, in some ways, their deal reminds me of like miserable royal marriages, you know, thinking of like Diana and Charles or something where it's just it's obvious that these people do not like each other and that their interactions are forced and awkward. And like you say, we had all these little weird things like she would drop his hand as soon as she thought she was out of view of the camera and she wanted to move to New York and like all this stuff. But it is just it's just such an artifact that, you know, the world is burning and she's just like, no, I I just don't want to be a part like this is his thing. I don't want to be like any part of it.
1: I also wonder now. It seems at least it seems that we think that she didn't like being first lady that that was just you know she wanted to be in New York and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff and maybe and 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 maybe that's true, but my sense is is that i I think that she shares all his grievances so i sus- I suspect that um despite having um you know, recoiling at his touch, (laughs) recoiling (laughs) at her husband's touch, that she was probably pretty pissed about the election, too, and was like, yeah, get insurrecting. I love it.
0: It was honestly never clear to me how much she cared about politics at all, and not in the way that I think she was some secret liberal crusader. I just always found it difficult to tell if she was, like, kind of completely uninterested, if she shared his worldview to some degree i don't because she didn't really ever want to do anything you know yeah. i mean her yeah. campaign as first lady was <laughs> don't bully people things so. which is
1: like the ultimate kind of gaslighting, <laughs> right it, it it's sort of like if you're uh I, I don't know if you're if you're if you're married to uh you know, if you were married to like Keith Richards in the nineteen seventies and you're you're kind of just don't say no to drugs, like <laughs> right. okay, like I think you're fucking with me here right you
0: know? exactly
1: um okay, so yep. uh dobbs
0: Dobbs, so this decision dropped last Friday um like you say, not a surprise, really not a surprise, in that the final was. Almost identical to the draft. The only substantively new parts were where Alito is basically addressing the dissent. But so all of the new stuff is kind of everybody else that's writing. And almost everybody did write except for Gorsuch and Barrett, which I do want to return to because I think that's kind of interesting. But so we had concurrences from Thomas, Kavanaugh, and Roberts. And Thomas's concurrence got a lot of headlines because he openly says in his that the court should return to and reconsider the cases making same-sex marriage um, legal that overturned anti-sodomy laws and uh, access to contraception for married couples upon which you know the right is built. So that was very you know, Alito and Kavanaugh are spending all this time being like, no, 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 no worries. All these other rights that are clearly intermingled with abortion and built upon the same theory, they're fine for, they basically gesture in the direction of like, well, people don't think that's murder. So they're cool. Don't worry about it. Which, you know, we should all sleep well with yep. those assurances. Um, And then Kavanaugh's concurrence was just kind of felt like trying to pour water on Alito's fire a little bit to like soften it, to say, again, to reiterate, no worries, gay marriage is safe. And then also to... which I think is actually important to put in some guideposts of what he's not okay with in the coming abortion wars, which I think is going to be very important that he said basically policing behavior over state borders in terms of abortion, that he thinks that is unconstitutional. And that could be potentially very important because if he won't go along with that, even if there are four other votes for it, I mean, that's that's it, right? That wouldn't be upheld by the court. Yeah. Um, And
1: it It's not much, but, and it's, it is, um, it's shocking to me that that is even being entertained. Yeah. It is so foundational. You can go to whatever state you want. This is not a confederation of countries. You can pick up whenever the fuck you want and just move to a different state, go to a state for a day. So the idea that which is actively being discussed—that that that—if that you go to another state to uh, uh, get an abortion, or much more, I, I think where the rubber really hit, hits the road, because for a variety of reasons, mostly political, that most states don't want to get into the business of prosecuting the woman who gets the abortion. Some right. will, but usually just because it's idiotic from an optics and political standpoint, but the person who, you know, helps you find the clinic in two States over that those people or the, you know, so, so it's, it's a lot of, but as you say, that is important because mm-hmm. I almost certainly Roberts would not be along with that. So right. that means there's only four votes to sustain those laws. So those laws, at least for the moment, won't, get anywhere. And frankly, uh, you know, this is, this is why in my mind, Kavanaugh is such a different character because what constitutionally on that point, he's certainly right. And mm-hmm. thank God he's right. Cause it could be worse if he was taking a different position, but that's really the position of, Hey, your daughter in Texas, we got her covered. Just come to New York. It's fine. Come to Maryland. You can Mm -hmm. still get your abortion. We're not going to go there. Um, And so it's, he is, you know, Barrett is clearly, you know, someone who has very deep-seated and very traditionalist religious views and just sees it as fine that those are her. She's on the court now. So that's that's the law. Yeah. Um, Whereas Kavanaugh is... Much more of a kind of a federalist society f- uh, ideologue who, yeah, abortion's done. We're getting rid of that. Um, we're 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 going to unwind all the. I mean, the things he cares about, I think, are much more the sort of the regulatory stuff, the stuff that the sort of the judicial ideologues care about. So he's probably saying like, hey, we got rid of Roe. Don't go overboard. We're not doing this state-to-state crap.
0: Yeah, I think that's the key, because I don't think it's like Brett Kavanaugh has some bright internal light that's guiding him here. I just think this isn't his pet issue. And this is Barrett's pet issue. I mean, it was explicit at the time that this is what she was being put on the court for, which is why I was fascinated that she didn't write anything. For a while, I was kind of batting back and forth in my head of whether she would be given this decision. And then I was kind of thinking this is too big for the newest person on the court to take. But still, I mean... I thought that there might be some interest in having her be the face of it, just to defray the the anti women accusations. You yeah, know,
1: yeah. But yeah. she,
0: yeah, she didn't write. And I think in all the most interesting,
1: has she written other? Uh, I, I just haven't. Uh, but this is the one I was focusing. Uh, like like a lot of people, has she written? I mean, she's only been on for a year and a half, but. Mm-hmm. Has she written a relatively substantial amount given you know she's one of nine?
0: She's written a few, okay, but um, you know, none of them have kind of risen to the level that we have been tracking, so right,
1: right, 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 um, but yeah, I mean, it's certainly it would, it would, it would be, it would not be the norm that someone who just got on the court would write the lead opinion on something of such consequence. Right. Um, You know, so, so, but as you say, this is a, there's unique dynamics to this, you know, to this case well i guess you know in in some ways her silence speaks volumes that even a lot of the other conservatives are like hey whoa (laughs) there's a little too hot to handle so i want the goods like i'm 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 down with the decision Mm -hmm. but i want to kind of like hey i'm not like i need to get a little distance and she's basically saying no i don't i need no distance right this is exactly what where i am
0: And I think the choice of the lead author is just telling because Alito is not who you choose if you want any kind of a bedside manner in your decision. I mean, he goes out of his way to hurt people's feelings, to make people feel bad, to kind of shove it in your face and be like, ha, I got what I wanted. So. In terms of even what I was thinking of, like, putting this maybe, like, pro-woman sheen on it, this court clearly just has no interest in trying to, even for purely political reasons, to, like, stem the backlash of this decision because Alito wrote it in as offensive of a way as possible. There is no section in there, basically, that talks about the plight of the women that he's now kind of opening upon them. He has this, like, brief section where he compares— anti-abortion views to kind of pro-choice views and the anti-abortion one is way longer and then he'll throw in little tidbits like women are not without electoral power you know the whole thing it's just a big fuck you to people who are upset about this yeah
1: it's a lot of trolling exactly basically it's it's kind of not only are you losing but like your arguments sucked yeah and why do you even want an abortion why are you exactly. such a hoe?
0: Exactly. I, mean, I mean, it's really a kind of yes.
1: It's it's just it, no. So here's a kind of a technical question. I'm not totally sure about. So when this when the chief justice, this is my recollection. When the chief justice is on the majority side, he chooses the person who writes the decision. Right. If he's on the minority side, then the most senior uh, judge uh, justice makes the you know chooses who gets mm-hmm. to write it. In this case though, since since uh, uh Roberts was sort of going back and forth whether he would be you know is, is he in the majority here or or is he's not in the minority, but I he think, also kind of so I I I guess what I'm wondering is who chose Alito?
0: I think it was him.
1: I I, I think sus- it was. Yeah, I mean it's kind of a technical question because i don't know how that gets um you know we should i feel like we should ask some you know Rick Hazen or something like that you know kind of because again if 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 they have their um if they have their meeting that mm-hmm. one meeting where they talk about it yeah and there's the five and uh roberts is not willing to sign on i would think that that means thomas isn't thomas the sp- most senior okay The thomas chooses um but again this is kind of like a factual question that i i don't know how that works when it's not clear who's you know right who's in the majority and who's in the who's in the minority
0: yeah let's let's talk about the roberts concurrence because that to me is the most interesting text of the whole bundle because he writes to say he is concurring in the judgment, e.g. he is concurring in upholding Mississippi's 15-week gestational ban. And then he adds, I think the court went too far in overturning Roe, not because he thinks the opinion is wrong, and he goes out of his way to say that it's well-reasoned and thoughtful, but just because it's unsettles the legal system because it sends a shockwave through the system. And I just think it's so emblematic of Roberts that he is writing specifically to position himself in the way this story gets told, to position himself in that, you know, hey, look, They went too far. Not my fault. I would have gotten rid of the viability line, and then he spends a lot of time talking about how much he hates the viability line. But I wouldn't have overturned Roe because we don't need to decide it right now. Not be for any other reason, but just because it was unnecessary and because it will be this big hubbub essentially. And I just it, it cracks me up because it's like the weakest possible decision you could take. You know, he disagrees with what the what the Majority opinion does, but he won't join the dissent. He'll he's still part of the majority, but he's just like, hey, I'm washing my hands. This isn't my fault. I would have only severely curtailed abortion rights, not gotten rid of them altogether. So that's me, John Roberts, the institutionalist.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, there's something in many contexts. There is something. To, well, there's something you said on a few points. At, at some level, that's what stare decisis really is about. Kind of, you don't you you really avoid overturning precedent unless there's some really compelling reason to do so. Um, and just as a more general point, the, as as Roberts was sort of the fulcrum of, of his decision, there's nothing about this case that required them to overturn Roe. It's just a case about a 15-week limit. So you can just say, okay, you know, now we'll that, we're, that law is okay, so now you can do fifteen weeks. And and as we know, the judges just decided this is the one. This is you know let's 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 do it. And they can kind of, I mean, you know, play devil's advocate. That's what Brown was. The Brown decision. There was a whole. I'm not sure when the first one is, but you know, a couple decades of decisions basically chipping away at separate but equal in all these different contexts, and then the court finally said, you know what, the whole thing is out. We're not just going to be saying, all right, you can't, you can't prevent this person going from, you know, from going to the graduate school somewhere in Alabama. The whole thing. So at at a certain point, you uh, at a certain point you make it. But yeah, Roberts. I mean, it is. It's it's it is a separate, fascinating story here. That, you know, this is Alito's court now. Mm-hmm. He sets the tone. I mean, literally, he sets the tone. Um, and Roberts is now kind of, you know, I wouldn't say it's sad because I don't really care, but, you know, don't care about if if he's sad, but how ineffectual, you know, he's just sort of like a caretaker, Chief Justice. You know, none of the, um, well, not none, some, but, you know, he clearly the project he had that we are going to reorder federal jurisprudence around a conservative set of principles, but we are not going to go on a tear. We're not going to go on a rampage, right? We're not going to throw out everything. We are, we're, and we're not going to let the court get too out of line with public opinion both because of my reputation and, you know, let's give him the benefit of the doubt, you know, believing in the institution of the court. But that just fell apart because of Trump, because of those three. And and even there, not just... um, It's interesting. I mean, obviously having three more conservatives put on the court was a pretty big deal. But you can imagine an alternative reality... Where a more moderate Republican president would say, you know, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna build out the majority, but we're gonna kind of go with Roberts types. We're not gonna, we're not gonna have people who are in the Thomas and Alito, you know, mold. And and what that mold has become is sort of like, you know, you got a problem with it? Meet my friend, six to three. Too fucking bad. Yeah. Right? Like we can do anything we want. And it doesn't matter what you say. And the more sad you are about it, the better. Because there's nothing you can do.
0: Yeah. That's something that I was really struck by too. And I I tweeted at the time that it just, it's just further proof of how completely out of control Roberts has gotten of his court. Because you can see a world where he convinces even those who are rabidly eager to overturn Roe, hey, we're going to get... A million of these cases because every red state in the country is sensing their opportunity and trying to send up cases. So why don't we approve the 15-week ban now, you know, approve some other kind of piecemeal death by a thousand cuts to abortion access and then... Build the snowball into overturning Roe altogether. Cause it seems like that's what he wanted to do. That's what he wanted to do during oral arguments, too. He just kind of dithered about the viability line while you had everybody else on the conservative side just not even masking their intentions to use this as a vehicle for overturning Roe. But you know, he he wasn't even able to restrain them for even a short period.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It is, it is um it is striking. And and I do think, I mean, if we can go back to the political context i do think uh well i think it is very possible that this decision marked a watershed that will lead maybe not to the destruction of the supreme court in the sen- in the, in its role its constitutional role in the american system but a a deep defanging of it um that's you know cold comfort in the short term um But you, um, the court will have a very difficult time sustaining, holding this kind of power in such defiance of public opinion in the country. I'm not saying it's going to happen immediately. And frankly, this is one, you know, I've, I've been making this point constantly that Democrats need to do this pledge. We keep the house. You give us two senators. We're passing a law to make Roe law. Period. It's a guarantee. We're going to do it in January 2023. Blah 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 blah. And a lot of people come back to me and say, "Hey, they're just going to over—they're just going to overturn that law. They say that that law is unconstitutional. So what's the point?" Now, to me, there's just a general point. Y- you know, you lose every game you don't show up for, and it is just not an ethical civic way to engage in life to say, "Well." Uh, they'll do something. So let's just not do anything. But there is a more specific issue here. Already, this decision has put the court deep on the defensive in the court of public opinion. It has turned a lot of people against the court for good reason. If you now have a, have a situation in which a midterm election, which Democrats seem bound to lose that they win in a significant part because of the backlash over this decision. And then Congress passes a statute saying, fine, you don't think it's constitutional right? We're just going to make it a law. And then you have the court say, oh yeah, this law also is unconstitutional. That will, that chain of events will build a huge political constituency for either adding justices to the court or stripping the Supreme Court of appellate jurisdiction over this entire issue, there are lots of things the political process can do to the court entirely within the within the strictures of the Constitution. And so are people willing to kind of, you know, what's the appetite right now for adding ju- adding members to the court or stripping jurisdiction? It's not there. But you have the political process, and I'm not saying this is going to happen, but if it were to happen, if you have the political process respond that clearly and the court just says, you know what, too bad, we're in charge, you will get public support to do those things. It's all a process.
0: Yeah, let's. that ties into a question we have. So Henry talks about how... He's seeing a lot of people blaming Democrats and thinks that's a misunderstanding of how we got to this point, thanks mostly to minoritarian institutions. So how hard will or can the Democrats now lean into reforming Senate, Electoral College, SCOTUS, and other anachronistic institutions? And I think this kind of leads right into what you're saying, because I... I agree with you that I think this is a longer game than this kind of knee-jerk reaction to expand the court, say, or give, um, you know, term limits or something. Even though, by that same token, I completely understand the anger of people who are like, Democrats, what's wrong with you? Why won't you put in these stops? Because it's abundantly clear that the Supreme Court is not going to stop at abortion, that we're going to get more of these kind of horrific decisions in the future. But, you know, it's... (sighs) It's just, it is a time thing. I mean, when you kind of think about how you got 48 of the Democrats on board with getting rid of the filibuster for voting rights, it's not like attacks on voting rights started in 2020. You know, that's been a Republican project for years and decades. And it took until we had an an attempted coup to kind of get these institutionalists on board with a, a filibuster carve out to pass voter rights protection. So I agree that I think it is this long rolling stone. And I also think that I totally agree with you that we are just going to get to a breaking point. I mean, as it is, I think the newest Gallup poll had approval of the Supreme Court at like 25 percent or something. We are just going to get to this untenable point. And the the question to me is that I have no idea when that's going to happen because this court is moving so fast and is not trying to attempt to like buffer any of this stuff or to to parcel it out slowly or in ways that people won't be paying attention to. It's all happening really really quickly. So maybe that speeds up the breaking point. You know, I don't know.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think that um you, you know the 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 listener mentioned about you know. Do they, you know, do you now need to reform various institutions, uh, change the electoral college? The electoral college, that is virtually impossible. And, and I'm not a person who talks about impossibilities a lot, but you need the small states to agree to give up their disproportionate power. And the same applies to the Senate. So the, the obstacles to, do, to doing that are just immense. Again, you need the small states to agree to give up their power, and that is going to be really hard. Why I think what I have described is so important is that you just need 50 votes. You need the House, you need the president, and you need 50 votes in the Senate. 50 votes, both for the law and to change the filibuster rules. One thing people don't don't fully appreciate is the Senate majority... Can change the filibuster rules at any moment with fifty votes, and the stuff about like the parliamentarian, how mean she is and won 't let won't let that doesn 't matter that is just advice that parliamentarian could be overruled fifty votes at any moment so this is in, this is totally doable and this this it 's not just even if you assume the worst and assume that the Supreme Court will immediately invalidate that law the that will still have advanced the ball dramatically because that will put before the country how out of control this court is. And again, there's something very different from overturning their own decision and saying, in fact it's up to states. It's up to, you know, it's it's up to states in the country. It's up to the, the political process. That is very different from just overruling the political process itself.
0: Yeah. I mean, one thing that, well, I think the Democratic response to the overturning of Roe has been like unbelievably bad in general. But one thing that is so glaringly absent to me is anyone really talking about Mansion and cinema continue to be the reason we don't have federal abortion protections right now. And like, I get the fact that it's futile. They've basically shown that they don't really care and they're, they're not going to be moved on the issue. But I still think there is value in making life as hard as possible for the two of them, if not because it will move them, then because it will show any newcomer Democratic senator, you can't do this. Or if you do, you are going to be hounded day and night. You're going to be protested. Reporters are going to ask you every single day if you've changed your mind. It's going to be very, very, very uncomfortable in a Senate where so much stock is put in comedy and getting along and being a team player. And that has just not been present at all. I think the closest thing we've got is you've got Brian Schatz, who's often one of kind of the only ones who will speak with candor about this stuff, doing the whole, we need two more Democratic senators so we can pass abortion protections, which is true. But then I do think there's value in having the addendum. And the reason is because we have these two that absolutely suck and are the reason you're not getting any abortion rights. I do think that should be part of it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I completely agree with that. And I think there's this tension because on the one hand, I think the power of that message is, all right, we're done with them. We're, yeah, gonna, we're not even considering them Democrats. We're not going to have these endless conversations about what is Joe Manchin thinking or Christian, like, done. Take them out of the picture. Let's accept the reality that we have a 48-vote majority, so we need two more. And, and it's sort of, it's recapturing political agency. True. Like, we don't have what we need. We can get it. Let's go get it whatever having said that i agree with you it is still (laughs) if you if we can manage both at the same time it's still good to remember we could deal with this right now right now except kirsten cinema and joe manchin for really no good reason just think we can't i mean it'd be one thing if like if if you know if if joe manchin was just very pro-life you say like okay that's his view he's not going to like do the opposite of what he believes just because all the rest of the day. but it's not even that he's at least nominally uh, kind of pro choice you know he's got that yeah. middling kind of uh you know he he i guess he he says he's for that you know uh collins Collins and what's-her-name's compromise. There's sort of like a a looser version of the Roe bill that kind of, um, I I guess it's kind of more like the sort of the status quo, whereas the Democrats version kind of takes it back to the original Roe and kind of uprows it a bit, right? You know, kind of, you know, adds a little protection. It makes it difficult
0: to do the kind of restrictions that we've now seen red states get very well versed in.
1: Yeah. I mean, that, it's it's funny. Politically, I think it is more viable to just say, we're just going to do Roe it's just the status quo. We're, we're just going to, we're not changing anything. It is sort of, you know, the ultimate sort of small C thing. This is, this is the country's plan we've been on for half a century. All we are doing is saying you can't change it. Um, but I, and and that is a political judge. I just think that's more viable. You get more people on board, but I do think it is, um, I do think there's a way that it is politically viable to put, and I, and as I understand the law, this is what it's doing. It's basically saying you, you can't do something about, you know, the, the countertop has to be three inches thick or some 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 BS like that. That obviously is purely technicalities that you're using to accomplish an aim that would otherwise be illegal. Um, and and I should say, you know, it, it's not like I'm the arbiter of 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 what is important here and 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 what is not i'm i'm purely in this case speaking from that accomplishment is out there in january 2023 i'm not saying it's easy but it's doable and what is the most viable way to get there
0: i mean i also think not that many people know the differences in abortion uh, jurisprudence under Roe versus under Casey versus whatever bastardized version it's become in like half the country. So I think you could also kind of market it as restoring Roe and tossing in these other things without absolutely, absolutely.
1: It that much. And I think that that's that is in 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 a lot of ways the even more important thing that you just bill it as hey this is Roe, right. and if someone says well you know as you say. <laughs> Let them them say what they want.
0: You're going to have Republicans anyway saying, you know, this lets you murder babies up to your last week, whether it does or not. So it's just kind of like, okay. (laughs) Yeah,
1: no. And I I think I think it is clear that politically you 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 present it, you package it, you market it to use all those kind of cringy words as it's just Roe. Mm -hmm. This is the Roe law it's just doing row and again since it's not even um y- y- you just say it is cuz it basically is and and that's just that's just it
0: exactly okay so then our last question is from carl which this is really the million dollar question is for statewide races like governor or senate does the dobbs decision help or hurt democrats this year in purple states and then you know he named some some big ones pennsylvania ohio wisconsin new hampshire nevada arizona georgia which are going to be critical to you know achieving the plan of getting two more democratic senators and passing abortion uh protections of some sort
1: i, I don't think there's any question it helps democrats I think the question is whether it helps Democrats enough to overcome other, you know, the negative political environment in general. But there's no uh, there is no question it helps, especially Senate candidates and gubernatorial candidates, but for very different reasons. And it's and it's, I think, pretty important to understand the difference. If you are in a state, uh, you know, anything but a kind of like a staunchly blue state, you really need a Democratic governor now. Yep. Because otherwise, you're you're going to have a law that outlaws abortion. So I, I think it is a it is a you know it's a big coup for Gretchen Whitmer, for Tony Evers, um, for uh, I can't remember the guy's name uh, in in Pennsylvania who's now like what the attorney general or something like oh, that. Oh, Josh Shapiro. Yeah, Josh Shapiro. Uh, good name. Uh, it, it's great for them for that reason. Because you, need a, you, need, you really need a Democratic governor, especially because most of these states are gerrymandered so effectively yep. that you'll like never have uh, a Democratic legislature. Um, so it's, it's a very big advantage there. But for the Senate candidates, this is why they really need to get it concrete. Because just like, oh, you know, because the, the current message kind of amounts to, hey, you're pro-choice, we're pro-choice, vote for us. Something good might happen. That that's not gonna cut it. You need to say really specifically, we're gonna, we're gonna undo this. Mm-hmm. So for everybody who's pissed off, you say, hey, you wanna undo it? Here's how you undo it. That really makes it clear cut. And I think that is a that is a message that I really think can keep the uh the Senate in democratic hands, but you need to get it uh more specific. And I will say this, I am a little more optimistic than other people I'm hearing on. I think Democrats are moving in this direction. They should already be there. They should not have been, you know, this should have been locked and loaded, mm-hmm. right? For the moment this came down. But at least from what I am seeing, you're seeing the sort of the gravity move in that direction to sort of say, hey, we need two more seats. And, and you know, the key is what, what is so frustrating to me, and I'm sure to many other people is you have this, like, we're going to keep fighting. Elect us. We're going to keep fighting mm-hmm. for choice and, and, and reproductive rights. Well, what, what the hell does that mean? You're going to keep fighting.
0: Like go sing the national anthem again. Yeah. Wh- what?
1: I mean, are you going to do this thing? And the whole key is, are you going to agree you're going to get rid of the filibuster, at least for this immediately mm-hmm. fight? You got to be specific, but I, I My sense is it's, it's gravitating in that direction, partly because we've been through this for a year and a half and everybody kind of knows like, dude, if you're not, if you're not going to kind of bite the filibuster bullet,
0: then like, you're just, you're just goofing around. Right. Yeah. I, I have. Two thoughts on this, one of which I do think I agree that it helps Democrats a lot. And I think in some matchups in particular, it helps a lot, a lot. And I think Josh Shapiro is a really good example of that because he's running against Doug Mastriano, who's like an avowed Christian nationalist. So that's going to be a very tidy setup for him when you've got a guy who is not even going to couch his desire to ban abortion completely. um, And they've got the legislature to do it. Exactly. Um, And then the other thing is just... Aside from just kind of the grouchy national climate and the inflation and all of that, which is bad, 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 we also, you know, Democrats are just working against years and years and years of historical precedent, which is that, you know, the president's party usually loses ground in Congress and this election, particularly when they have a political trifecta. And in the rare cases where that hasn't happened, it's been because there's been some Big massive thing that disrupts the political environment, you know, and this is a big massive thing. And again, we don't know if it's going to be enough because also in some of those other cases, you had presidents who have higher approval ratings than Biden does, which are just in the freaking toilet. But if <laughs> there's so, so bad, they're so bad. But if there's going to be something that I think kind of makes voters be like, these people annoy me, but look at the alternative it's going to be something like this.
1: Yeah. And I I do, I, I, you know, it's, it's, it's a very uh, steep hill to climb, but I really do think it is climbable because it's interesting that, you know, that there's Biden is so unpopular. Democrats are, are not sharing his unpopularity in the way that, um, in the way that would normally be the case. And I think that is basically because people are just bummed mm-hmm. and yes the the inflation issue gives gives a focus to that um but you know the the one t- there there are two times when this um when this pattern has been bucked and actually they were close together one was when when the question was whether bill clinton was going to be impeached and the other was four years later george w bush where it was basically 9-11 Yep. Um, and those were very catalyzing. I would say this that um, those, at least, it's hard to capture at least what the, exactly what the climate was like in 1998. People were just done. People, like, dude, drop it, drop it, drop it, drop it. Um, but it wasn't like, you know, your life was going to be terribly affected by Bill Clinton being impeached. You know, it, it's just kind of people are frustrated and done. And in um, the, the, you know, 9 11 was such a shock to the system, but it wasn't, it wasn't quite the same thing like there was something really on the ballot. In some ways, the Iraq War was, but the Iraq War actually was not very popular in the lead up to it. That's a whole other conversation. This is something that directly affects, I mean, it affects everybody it really directly affects half the population and it is you know with with in 2002 it's not like you're saying oh, we're gonna undo 9-11 and it will not have happened you know <laughs> there are reasons to think that this situation is distinct unique in a way that makes its potential significantly greater than what happened in in 1998 and in 2002 so i mean to the extent that people are kind of trying to get our sense trying to get their sense of of what we think in this case it is a steep hill but it is doable it's doable
0: and on that rare positive note
1: yeah rare for a while well remember too, here's another positive note. You remember that Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee is the sponsor of the Josh Marshall Podcast. And you can get twenty-five percent off at com with the promo code TPM. So with that thought,
0: uh I guess that's it. Oh we wonder, should plug the TPM journalism fund, right? Oh, right, 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 right. How could I how could I forget? Uh I I'm not exactly sure where we are, but I know we've made great progress and people have been very, very generous and we really, really appreciate it. So um, yeah, we're, we're almost there. Our producer says we're at 170 and we're trying to get to 200,000. Yeah. We're so- at once,
1: I think, wait, let me, let me refresh. I thought it said 168, but let me see. Um, yeah. Okay. We're at one, we're basically at 168. I mean, basically 170, but 168 and our goal is 200,000. So like, we're close. We're, we're really, closed. we're getting really close. So, um, as as Kate said many of you have already made these really generous contributions we really appreciate it it's critical to our um operation i th- i think we're pretty confident we're going to get there now but we just you know if you've been thinking about it you know maybe i'm going to do it maybe not uh maybe just t- decide to take the plunge today and and also you know and i'm sure Kate you can um you can relate to this. A lot of times there's something that we've we've decided we're gonna do. Like, oh, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna give a few dollars to my alma mater or do this or do that, but we just haven't gotten around to it. If you're in that if you're in that group, just make just, you know, make it today because, you know, if you do that, then we can we can stop boring you with these with these uh with these little promos about our about our drive. But seriously, it's important. And uh, we really appreciate everybody who has already contributed. Um, This was a, you know, this was an an ambitious goal, but really a necessary one. And and looks like we're going to get there. So thank you. And um, thank you in advance if you decide to to, uh, take the plunge today.
0: Yeah. And thank you for, uh, you know, all forms of support. If you can't contribute financially, thanks for listening. Thanks for reading. Blanket, thank you to our wonderful fans.
1: Absolutely. All right. right. Well, we'll uh, see you all next week. More amazing content next week. All right. (laughs) Later. Bye.
0: The Josh Marshall podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song. And thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen.